Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, as the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to the other side of midnight. I mean, tonight's show, the uh, Western Times of the United States, is going to be, I think, one of the mystery books by extraordinary, shall we say, um, I'm not even sure what the word is, uh, serendipity. We were able to get John Hogue, the perfect guy to talk about what's going on that we can't figure out. Uh, so let me let me um, let, let me kind of swing into what what John is, who John is, and why we're so fortunate to have him tonight. John is the author of over 1,200 articles and 48 published books, something like a million plus copies sold, spanning 21 languages all over the world. He has predicted the winner of every U.S. presidential election by popular vote since 1968, giving him a remarkable 13-0 to batting average. Hogue is a world-renowned expert on the prophecies of Nostradamus and many other prophetic traditions. He claims to focus on interpreting the world's ancient to modern prophets and prophecies with fresh eyes, seeking to connect readers with the shared and collective visions of terror, wonder and revelation about the future in a conversational narrative style. We're going to find out how conversational we are tonight. Hoag says the future is a temporal echo of the actions initiated today, but of course echoing in the distant future or sometimes the near future. He strives to take readers back to the present, empowering them to create a better destiny through accessing the untapped potentials of free will and meditation. John, welcome to the other side of midnight. Thanks for having me on, Richard. This is so perfectly timed. I can't believe a you were available this weekend, and b that you already really heavily, heavily thinking uh, about uh, you know what, what's going on in, in the uh, Gulf of Oman, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, let me let me start by asking questions because we have an audience all over the world. A lot of them may or may not have heard of you. Who are you? How did you get into this? Specifically, how did you get into interpreting, which is basically what you're known for wide, widely, uh, this guy Nostradamus, and of course we'll kind of catch people up on who Nostradamus is in case they've been living on another planet. Well, it would seem that um, since uh, my first real awakening into the possibility of futures – started in uh, October of 1962 when I was uh, uh, running up to the final days before my eighth birthday. And I had a very powerful premonition um, about a crashing jet. And I, of course, in a a near eight-year-old's narcissistic point of view, I look at it as uh, something to do with my parents going off to Las Vegas in a turboprop to be at the Sands Hotel when uh, Jack Kennedy, the president, was going to be there. Hmm. He got a ticket to be in the same banquet at the Sands, and uh, I was inconsolable that they were going to die in the air crash. And of course, they didn't, but this premonition still of this impending doom just still built, and then a few days later, President Kennedy announced that already at the time I was having the premonitions that the Cuban Missile Crisis had started. And I I came to understand later that the flaming jet engine in a field was that of the U-2 jet, that uh, just prior to solving the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was actually its most dangerous moment when a SAM missile site fired on a U-2 
uh, spy plane trying to do final packages for the final massive attack that was planned for the for that Monday, which was October 29th, 1962, if there was no resolution. Um, that jet was shot down. Uh, Major Alexander ended up being the only combatant killed in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, there was a point there where the uh, the generals who really wanted a war were were saying, okay, according to our rules of engagement, we should destroy the SAM site. And Kennedy almost went for it, but he said, no, not until I have confirmation that he was actually shot down. Hmm. And that allowed Robert Kennedy to uh, talk to Dobrynian and stop, as they said, the terrible thing that we have set in motion, said Dobrynian to him. He said, there are good people on both sides. You're just, that's all. If you've seen the movie Thirteen Days, all most of the words in that movie over are and over and over again. They are the actual things that were stated, and and so um, my birthday. If that hadn't happened in a happy way, if the ten minutes to midnight of 1962 Saturday had ended up crossing the line, similarly to what we just. Uh, I was going to say there's an incredibly eerie parallel here. Then this would have been, uh, then my birthday would have been the beginning of World War III in Mm. 1962. Now, as a very young child, I I was deeply. Well, because, hang on, hang on, John, because nobody knew, McNamara only said it later, that that the uh, Russians had put in a whole bunch of tactical nukes into Cuba. Yeah. And that was the only mistake in the big mistake in the movie. They talked about the frogs in the movie. That, were, that was their code name in the Pentagon. Uh, they were also under command of battalion commanders. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are two, this, these are the random dangerous elements that happen when you push the brink, somebody to the brink of war, is that even a group as centralized as Soviet command had to. Uh, mistakes that happened. A commander that launched his SAM missiles without uh, above approval and the potential when the Marines were landing in Cuba for the ships to be melted by tactical nuclear weapons on the beaches uh, that were decided upon launching by battalion commanders. And even Khrushchev was shocked by this. And so, you know, the the level of mistakes that can happen, uh, unintended consequences that have uh, – that gave us World War One and the guns of August, that gave us the Gulf of Tonkin, mm-hmm. uh, which was basically U.S. destroyers shooting at lightning, uh, not North Vietnamese gunboats. And then uh, – we have here this thing that just happened. Now, to get back to something that you said early on there, is that um, I have – so anyway, my my interest, long story short, is I've been fascinated since a very young age and shocked to attention much probably earlier than I should have been as a child to these rather shocking possibilities of the world being destroyed. But what it did is launch me into being a, a news hound. Since I was eight, uh, a lover of history, studying it like a pathology. Why does the past keep repeating itself was a question I kept asking, studying history exhaustively, thousands of books as I grew up, until I exhausted that issue and then started in my maturity to, in my teens, to question why do I exist? 
And so I started studying all the religious scriptures, and, which, of course, naturally led me to the annals of future history, which are contained in the, in the writings of prophets, not just religiously based, but also rogue prophets like Nostradamus. Uh, and in that pro- process, I stumbled upon Nostradamus uh, in in middle school, but didn't really serious start, seriously start reading him until 1974, mainly because uh, in 73 I had had another great epiphany watching the movie Soylent Green. That that was the moment I became aware of the, everything that's now starting to approach us rather rapidly in a mass extinction threat uh, due to climate uh, disruption. Um, so these these things have, you know, the, the threat of war, the threat of climate disruption uh, are a few of the main elements that are now finally, after all these decades, coming directly into play. And I've been writing about them. And certainly the Iranian problem, I've been writing about it since the first time uh, President Bush Jr. sent uh, through the pressure of Dick Cheney, the vice president, uh, two flotillas into the Persian Gulf to saber rattle, start this kind of saber rattling of presidents with Iranian regimes since 2006 December. Uh, That warranted the first edition of Nostradamus, The War with Iran, uh, published in the spring of 2007. And then the uh, tremendous pressure exerted in the early uh, terms of, of Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel to even uh, against not even being invited by the president at the time, Obama, but actually inviting himself to to stand before both houses of the Congress and mm. lobby heavily for American boys and girls to repeat again what what helped Israeli strategies and you know strategic thinking is if you've got a bigger friend who can fight your wars for you, why not? If you're a small country, I mean, I I understand the real politic of it, and I, I'm not, I don't agree with the ethics of it, but I understand. And so you know, the American kids have been uh, have already successfully fought and died in their thousands, with tens of thousands injured, taking down one of their main enemies, Saddam Hussein. And then the second, now the, the the prize, which has been, and in this book you've probably seen, I I look at overviews of all the the manifesto evolution since 1992 of the neoconservative movement, which, by the way, many neoconservative leaders also have dual citizenship with Israel, so that means they are not only a neoconservative think tank for foreign policies for the United States. But the the barrier between the United States foreign and Israeli foreign policy is quite blurred. I don't actually know who we're fighting for now, whether it's Jerusalem or whether it's Washington uh, in the last few wars. So, so, so basically, and because of that, the second edition, which you're reading of Nostradamus, the war with Iran, also had additional to it a subtitle, Islamic Prophecies of the Apocalypse, which I felt it was very, very important that the West, who has so little knowledge, direct knowledge, unbiased knowledge of how people think and see the world in the Middle East, uh, and especially in Iran, that they would, uh, that we almost know nothing about the very rich tradition of prophecy uh, from the Islamic faith. Um, most of the most important prophecies were written, well, 
they were transcribed after a few centuries of being passed by word of mouth from the mouth of Muhammad the prophet in the Hadith, which is the it is not the Quran, it is the holy book. It is it is um, outside of the holy book. Uh, Muhammad trying to kind of explain to himself and answer questions to what this transmission means. So it's not writ from God. It's Muhammad trying to write about what he understood. Yeah. yeah and let it, me let me do this, John. Um, for those who are going to be listening for three hours, you're going to get a pretty good slice of what's in this important book. But for those who, who can't or who don't have time or whatever, what you want to do is to get John's book. And the way you find John's book on this, which I think is important as backstory, you go to the other side of midnight.com. You click on tonight's banner, Nostradamus and the War with Iran, for January uh, 23rd. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Scroll down, and you'll find under John's Items and Radio with Pictures uh, a link directly to the book, The War with Iran, Islamic Prophecies of the Apocalypse. That's the one you're going to want to, after tonight's show, pick up a copy. And, and re- Did I say uh, January? I meant June. Yeah, um, you did. I was... Uh... I'm, okay. I'm I'm obviously another place in time, so. Um, yeah, well, I do it all the time. <laughs> it's, it's June, June 23rd tonight. Anyway, that book is going to be very important as we go ahead, because it's going to give you road markers, you know, markers on maybe a future that does not have to come to pass. So let me let me start with this question, then we'll go back to a, you know, very kind of long catch up. What do you think interrupted Trump twice this weekend in not doing what he'd already decided doing? One with the Iran war and the other, you know, he was going to have this sweep starting tonight of uh, illegal immigrants. And he put that on hold suddenly for, quote, two weeks. What's going on here? What's going on is um, is Trump who will always be underestimated for his rather unusual astrological background, his, his uh, Kelly blue book of his body, mind vehicle in this visit through, uh, in earth, which is what a birth chart often shows for all of us. He is a uniquely unconscious, but very powerful channel uh, that when he said on 60 minutes during the campaign, when his voice changed and softened, he said, you know, I, the truth be known, I, I've always felt like I'm still that eight-year-old boy I was, and I haven't changed a bit. And in all the many, because he's a Gemini, he is somebody who plays with many different personalities as a natural state of being. Because he has Uranus uh, conjoined his Gemini at birth, it makes him very much at peace with being a 180 kind of guy, just unpredictable. Unpredictability is his natural state of being. And and so he plays it. He also plays uh, people's uh, snap judgments against them. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing how people, you know, people see him as an idiot or a fool or a clown. And those are elements of him, but in such a Gemini nature, there are layers upon layers. And the Gemini, uh, when they're in their zone, they will they will use those at the right moment 
bring up the right personality to deal with things. Now, I I follow a certain thing which I call my oracle to give for want of giving the nameless a name, and it's how I do what I do, and I am often personally not in agreement <laughs> with with what it predicts. I mean, obviously, when I predicted three presidential winners by popular vote. A lot of them were Republicans. A lot of them were Democrats, and most of them were people I never wanted. To, they were never voted for. So, um, so that's an important thing because a lot of people, when they read my work, they often come in not aware that they're trying to find agreement in my prophecies and, and or my interpretations. And it always eventually happens that a day will come where I'm saying something that goes against the agreement. And rather than kind of see, oh, I'm kind of playing a game of I want things to happen and I want Mr. Hogue to agree with me, they say, well, you were this brilliant guy and now you're terrible. So, <laughs> so it becomes narcissistic. So it's the you know one moment the dog is wagging and its tail, and the next moment the dog bites. And so, but that's an occupational hazard. It's a hazard that all people in this field, uh, famous and not, have have to deal with. And the thing is that I, I was pulled for no conscious reason that I could understand to Donald Trump's apogee, his, his, his uh, watching the, the rise of his star emerge after he had the crisis with the casinos in New Jersey and nearly lost his, uh, his organization, but somehow managed to get the funding, get get the agreement approval to start all over. Well, in truth, it was, it, it was daddy who bailed him out many, many times. Well, that was, that was the beginning. And, and again, there's, there's an interesting side because, you know, of course that's out there. It's kind of become the mythology. Well, daddy is made, it would kind of use to say, well, daddy made him who he is. People forget. And, uh, and back to my point, I, I, people don't look at the details. They look at the myth around Trump. But I started early on in 92 to really get to know him, not knowing why I would be dealing hmm. so much with this colorful eccentric. I actually watched all the celebrity uh, apprentice and apprentice shows, and I've read all of his books. And so I've I didn't understand why this was so important until the, the news came out around June almost four years ago, I guess four years ago in 2015, where they say, oh, did you hear uh, Trump is going to run for president? My first impression was it sounds like he's doing a promotion for Celebrity Apprentice. Well, that was the second time that he was talking play. about running. Yeah, well, actually, he has thought about it about five times. Uh, he was even talking about it in the 90s. And... Um, it's been on his mind, and the issue with China has been on his mind for 20 years. Uh, well, it used to be Japan. Unfair trade things. Yeah, he used to be so, really against so Japan thing, on unfair trade. Yeah, but 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 China has been on the on the plate with him since the 90s, late 90s. I've seen him. I've I've looked, rechecked the things he said, and and so when China began to emerge. Um, but it really became big in the first, you know, nearly 20 years of this century. So anyway, the point is that um, I took a look at his chart. My, I put my 
my own biases aside and looked at this chart. And within 15 minutes, my jaw was dropping. I said, oh, my God, this man is the only Republican candidate who has a chance to beat Hillary Clinton. And if he manages to get to the 8th of November 2016, in all the times I've been doing this kind of work, I have never seen a man more harmoniously predisposed to win an upset on 2016 election than Donald J. Trump. On top of that, he was doing it on a very rare election year that was the year of the monkey in Chinese astrology, which is always a period when um, anti-establishment people, you know, monkeying around, if you will, <laughs> throwing monkey wrenches into the spokes of power, okay. have a chance. We had Sanders and we had him. Both outsiders, hmm. uh, a rogue one percenter and a democratic socialist trying to play changeling in the Democratic Party, which I also said was no way he was going to be allowed. And it does not at all surprise me that what Julian Assange uncovered uh, <laughs> uh, the rigging of the election uh, of the primary happened, which I wrote about in my book, What Really Happened, Hillary Rodham Clinton, a, um, a prophetic and astrological assessment. Um, so the thing is, he... Uh, so the, the pattern of Trump is actually quite predictable to me, even though it seems to throw people 180s and CNN and MSNBC because they can't step out of their own uh, projections of, of, that blind them from seeing the man neutrally. The, 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 the hatred or the blind belief that's out there uh, for those who see him doing nothing wrong. Uh, is really, in both cases, a classic example of this man being the third president in a row who has what we call in astrology the Sun-Neptune uh, square in his chart, either in the birth chart like the first two presidents or in his relationship with the United States uh, in the third of Trump. What it means simply is delusional, uh, par excellence, delusional. It means that you have the first one who had it, uh, Bush, thinking God told him to invade Iraq and God told him to do this and that, a higher father than his own, the president who preceded him. Um, in Obama's case, it was more sophisticated. Uh, in his son, in his uh, son chart, uh, it natal chart, it was in the way a lot of politicians sublimate their sexual desires to uh, win over people the girl who's impossible to get kind of people. Hmm. And um, he seduced people to vote for him. So it's kind of a seducer. And when the seducer won the first term and he had the, lunch, the dinner with all the heads of the right and the Republican Party and their magazines, and they basically made it very clear that they were going to do everything to nullify him as a president, rather than doing the prudent political thing of saying, oh, now that I have the House and Senate, I'm going to strengthen my own base. And by midterm, we might be able to uh, get a complete mandate and I can do what I want to do. But no, instead, he did the classic delusional thing of this square. He said, I'll win them over. And he squandered the first two years when he really had the power and control to do things. He squandered all that capital trying to win the, the woman who does not want him. And he didn't. He didn't release it until he was in his second term, uh, but it was too late. 
Now, Trump does not have that, fortunately, in his chart. Well, hang on. Let me, let me but, stop you there because the major achievement, I think, of the Obama administration for getting the health care thing was this nuclear treaty with Iran. And if we yes, were on that, that track – hold on that. It's important. It's in, hold on that. I'm getting to that. Okay. It's important to, to uh, not break the thread of this because the point – here is leading to exactly what's important about the background of understanding how we live in this relationship with Trump. People who love or hate him, we're all in this together as a country because his um, his son is in square with the United States birth charts in of Virgo Neptune. Now, what that means in labor in layman's terms is that uh, it is related to the economic cycles of boom and bust of the country, which are a very important part of this oscillation of the country. So what you have is basically metaphorically a, a, a kind of like a, a Mormon marriage. You have one husband with two wives. One wife is red, right? The other white is bl- wife is blue, left. And where one wife, the red wife, sees that he can do no wrong, that he's like a savior, that uh, anything that's going wrong, they they're tolerate him because the belief, the hope is so strong that they will forgive him anything as long as uh, he shows in their hearts that he is going to someday fulfill the situation. The blue wife, who does not like to be in this marriage – president and the American people, uh, can see that he can do no wrong, that he's a monster, that he's absolutely a clown. You mean can that, do no right? he's dangerous. And so – Hang on, John. We're so, talking Trump, right? That's not all of it. I think that's you misspoke. That's not all of it. I think you misspoke. You mean Trump, in their eyes, can do no right, the blue wife. Right. Yeah, so they, he can do nothing right. He's evil. He's a you know he's he's a monster. He's a joke. He's uh, he's one dimensional. All of that. It's it's a, a wife who hates him, and a wife. Now this metaphorically is the red flyover states who voted him in electorally, and the blue coasts that did not. And we're all politically speaking married to this man. He is according under constitutional rules the president. Even though the one wife thinks that this is not true at all, and the other, of course, is great <laughs> about it. Now, the the thing is, now the third element is in this kind of tri- triad, it's everybody's self-deluded. The president is also fighting over this relationship in his own reality, trying to expect things out of the American people that are pure projections, as much as they are projecting. And not seeing the reality on the other side, whether they blindly love him or hate him. So it's a three-way, three-dimensional struggle for the whole country to kind of get past their what they're throwing on each other and actually look at what's actually there. And so my work since then in these first two books and a final book uh, coming to be the climatic Act Three. Uh, early this coming year uh, is is trying to bring to understanding how a man can go right up to the edge and usually it's a tale of if you 
read the art of the deal. You know that Trump has this flamboyant way of going using his vulgarity for effect and taking things right to the edge, even the threatening violence. But uh, once people have been thrown off their center, then he comes another direction, conciliatory. Let's well, his talk. whole fire and fury thing with Kim Jong-un. Exactly. And I've, I've said for a few years now that he would go farther in getting uh, a North Korean leader to the peace table than anyone else because I thought, well, at last – the Kims have a president who speaks the same language of bluff. <laughs> and they, they, I totally got how Kim uh, Jong-un understood. They understood each other. The rocket man, the old dotard. The, you know, this is classic celebrity apprentice. I'll tell you what, two hold, celebrities or world leaders hold, with nukes. Hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is John Hogue, and we're backing up on a very long runway to try to figure out what is going on in the Gulf of Oman with Iran and with the President of the United States. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 and access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And we are back. Welcome back, everyone. My guest this morning is John Hogue. We're trying to figure out the inscrutable, and I don't just mean the president. I mean, what's really going on in the Middle East? John, why don't we go back and kind of begin geopolitically where, for me, this kind of began, which is when we overthrew, back in the 50s, I believe, with the CIA, the rightful rulers of Iran, of Persia, and installed via the CIA uh, the, the Shah, and that was kind of the modern beginning of all our various problems. Yes, it is a, a, a truth about individuals as well as nations that the law of karma applies. The, one of the earliest and most dramatic of about 81 um, collusions of U.S. Uh, CIA in other people's elections that had historic consequences was what happened in 1953 or somewhere around there where the Iranian people decided to vote out the Shah as their dictator, Shah of Iran, and then replace him with a parliamentary government. The parliament was elected by the people and this man, Mossadegh. I'm not going to spell it right. Or say it right but, uh, <laughs> I can't find it. It's not in front of me. But um, anyway, he uh, 
he was uh, deposed, tortured, arrested, destroyed because the British Petroleum, you know, the same people who gave us a oil covered uh, Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, Deepwater Horizons. Um, yeah, and uh, he, uh, British Petroleum had forced through the Shah uh, basically the the natural resources of Iran to be completely exploited by by the British, you know, a classic colonial move. And the Iranian people didn't like it any more than if somebody owned our all our oil fields and we worked very hard and it all went somewhere else and we never saw any money for it. So the people rose up. Uh, BP went to the CIA and said, help. And uh, CIA went in and overthrew the government violently and then remained there to train the Savak, which was uh, the secret police of the Shah who was reinstalled on his throne. And the Savak, I don't know, frankly, over the years, who's worse, the Nazi Gestapo or the Savak. They were terrorizing people, thousands disappearing. They were a ruthless and horrible secret police. And they were one of the main reasons why at last, towards the end of the 70s, a secular uh, rebellion in the streets happened. The Savak then massacred thousands in the streets, but the whole country arose. And it threw out the Shah, and we were still supporting. It also threw out, uh, the, uh, annihilated the Savak. And one of the reasons why we had the famous embassy hijacking of the new revolutionary, uh, the Islamic Republic. This was, was in the early 80s. Like with, this was in the early 80s. It started in 79, the, the new Islamic Republic of Iran. It did not begin that way. Um, it was a sec, just like Kerensky and the Duma created ah. a democratic attempt in March of 1917. The Bolsheviks overthrew later in 1917 to create the communist Soviet Union. In a similar way, a secular rebellion, which we could have supported uh, but didn't, uh, was overtaken by Islamic extreme leadership. And from France came the exiled Ayatollah. This, yeah, Khomeini. This, this is the Khomeini, who became the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Khomeini, uh, as Ayatollah, Ayatollah means uh, sign uh, you know the sign you know the the priest who's the sign of God of Allah, and there is a famous prophecy of Nostradamus that seems to talk about uh this event um I'm going to look for it here it's uh there it is um it says, uh, it's Quatrain 70 of Century 1. There are 10 volumes in his magnum opus, which was written during the 1550s through the early 1560s, serialized, and it was put together as one volume a few years after he died in 1550, 1568, Nostradamus. And it has been around in that form ever since. Um, it basically, to translate the French, it is... Uh, Rain, famine, and war in Persia, that's Iran, modern, will not cease. A trust too great will betray the monarch or the Shah. For the end was planned and conceived in France, a secret sign for one to be more sparing. Hmm. Now, this, this is shocking because the key 
you got to know your intimate history with Nostradamus. <laughs> I mean, Persia is rarely mentioned, but it's often in the clear. So it's in, whenever Nostradamus seems to have an important potential future that could change everything, like the French Revolution or British history up to the Empire period, he's amazingly in the clear. He, he names names and and describes things that are. Uh, uh, quite shockingly in the clear, like in the French case, he talked to the king of the time, Henry II, in a letter, and he said there'd be a persecution of the church from the from the common advent, a rebellion of the common advent, the common vulgar people, and they would overthrow the kings, and it would uh, the persecution of the church would end in 1792, and they would consider this time these new people. He later called them prophecies these headless idiots. He was a royalist, so he was being a bit biased about it. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh, Danton, Robespierre, all, uh, all except for Marat, who was killed in his bathtub, uh, all the people ended up uh, starting the guillotines, uh, falling on on people, ended up one after one guillotine themselves. So he called them the headless idiots, mm-hmm. and. And so, but he said they they would consider this a new age and create a new calendar in 1792. This is like 275 years later. Okay, he's dating it. Before we go on with the story, I think you got to back up a little and define who, for folks aren't following, who the hell is Nostradamus and why should we pay attention to him? Because of uh, his accuracy, because he is, uh, you've got to take note to somebody, the only guy in the 1500s who is still a hot controversy after all these centuries. Well, give us a thumbnail of who he was, why he wrote in this weird I really like to finish my point, though, because one of the things that happens in shows, and I I can almost feel it out there, people, I can hear them saying, let him finish the point, (laughs) because there's an important point I have to make to actually get to that point that we can go. All right. So, so, you know, the point, and I was actually answering your question in a way, when you've got somebody from 275 years before the time, who's accurately dating the date, a date, and putting it uh, and talking about a detail which is kind of unusual, like how many times are calendars created because people think it's a new age. And this actually happened in the First Republic in September of 1792, and it became a completely different calendar system until Napoleon took over uh, in 1799. And the persecution of the church ended because the church was disbanded and all the monks and everybody were cast in the streets. So uh, the organization ceased to exist in 1792. It's because of these moments in Nostradamus, granted that there are other things that are open to interpretation, that people, every generation since the 1550s, has tried to uh, debunk him which is unsuccessful, or as well as try to anticipate events, uh, which is often, unfortunately, in hindsight. And it's because of that, and it's because it's unique in the annals of prophetic history, that uh, this man just can't be forgotten like most uh, characters in history. I mean, how many people from the 1500s do we still debate and fight over? Not even (laughs) da Vinci. Uh, I mean, he's we we make him a darling of fantasy movies and stuff and Da Vinci codes and stuff like that. But Nostradamus is actually people fight over Nostradamus like he's uh, 
like people fight over Trump or Obama or other people. Is he good? Is he bad? Or like people fight over another famous Gemini of many personalities, Richard Wagner is still, he's been dead for almost two centuries and everybody's still fighting about him, mm-hmm. um, loving and hating him. So, so it's not often. So that, that to answer your question, that, that I can tell you that even in, even the, in his own time, people were upset with him. For one thing, he was a, a sloppy astrologer. The only These astrologers live in footnotes in his life story because they say, well, he's wrong about this and that. And, and he didn't get the right month on that. Of course, you know, he didn't have computers either. Um, the, the point, though, was that they wouldn't talk about the fact that he was right about his interpretation. He might have misread the stars, but the point is that in so many cases with astrologers, they are so attached to their tools and they forget what the tools are for. They are tools, from my experience, triggers that bring you into the divination zone. Whether it's staring at a spoon or getting falling in love with stars in your charts, it's what it does to you that makes you open up. And it can be anything. Uh, that is the scrying magic. And so Nostradamus was a sloppy astrologer, but what he interpreted does happen. And a lot of those guys who dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's are only remembered because they didn't like that about him, not because of what they predicted. Okay, well, that re- that's the reason why we're paying attention to him. Good, good summation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's uh, – so you have the back to – Quatrain seventy uh, of century one. And when I you mean, say quatrain, I mean, what do you mean? It's a four line. Uh, he wrote in four line verses ah, okay. that were in polyglot uh, system, mostly Latinized, sixteenth century French, but Latin, Greek, uh, Provençal, uh, Breton, and some other some other um, unusual dialects. And and to study him, one has to really be intimate with every single word, how it can be. Etymology, etymologically um, <laughs> conjured for the 1600s as well as for the 20, 2000s. Um, so, so the, if you know your history and you have to be intimate with history, because Nostradamus's prophecies are almost like accounts as if he saw it on a television, as if he saw the, a movie, which he hears and sees. And even smells sometimes. He uses those senses. So it's not enough to know that Columbus sailed the blue in 1492. you got to know what the weather was like the day he landed or what was the nickname of his first officer, so to speak. You know? So it, it takes a lot of intimacy. For instance, one would not understand. And also things are not understood until they happen or comes closer to them. Case in point, uh, the uh, dubia. Uh, which is this Ndubia, a doubtful one, um, who the capital would not want to rule at all. Um, he would not be able to achieve his great ambitions. Um, that didn't make a lot of sense until the turn of this century when we had a president who loved to give people nicknames, including himself, which he called Dubia. And there it is, kind of in a French version, Dubia, and it also has the capital spelled in it. Only twice in the 80,000 words of Nostradamus do, does it, do they spell it like we spell it. So that indicates to me some connection that I wouldn't have known until we had a president that was called Dubia for W, mm. as in W. Bush. So 
So in the same way, we wouldn't really know exactly what was going wrong with this poor Shah, this monarch in Persia, except for the line three, when he says, for the end was planned and conceived in front. The end was planned by Ayatollah Khomeini, who had been exiled by the Shah, spent many years in Iraq until Saddam Hussein kicked him, he ended up in where he basically built, just like Lenin had to leave Russia, this Lenin of the Islamic Revolution had uh, set himself up in France and was waiting for the moment to come back and take over. That's what happened. And then the story is more for the a secret sign on to be more sparing. What's chilling about that statement is, what did I tell you Ayatollah means in English? A sign. Mm. Okay, question. Why did the Iranian Revolution go theocratic as opposed to secular? That huge division in history. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to talk about this tonight. There's a common struggle of the two main sects of Islam, the Sunnah or the Sunni and the Shia. Shias are Iran. And they're the they're about of the of the Ummah, which is the community of believers, are about over a billion believers in, in, in Islam, which means asalam, which means to submit, to surrender to God. It's when people say it means love, that's not what it means. Uh the West is so not appraised of the situation. This whole thing about this is very important pillar to everything that's going crazy in the Middle East that we never hear enough about in our news, in our backstories, is the struggle between the two competing major sects of Islam. You have the Sunni majority who believe since Muhammad's time that the caliph should be voted as the best theocratic person, most experienced as the pope, if you will, the caliph of the Ummah, the, the community of believers. And there's the Shia who believe that the descendants directly from the bloodline of Muhammad uh, should be the caliphs. That's why Ali, one of the early caliphs, uh, founded what ended up the schism early on in the Muslim faith that ended up with a lot of the Shia basically feeling martyred in a martyr complex for many, many centuries. Um, there are about 80 to nine, well, there's about a hundred million Shia and the rest 900 million Sunni and other sects, but they're minor. Um, so this tension, this potential, the other thing to answer your question is that, you know, why did the extreme religious people win is the struggle in modern, modern times has seen two waves in the Islamic world since the 20th century, a love to modernize that was inspired by Ataturk the father of the Turks, uh, mm -hmm. Kamal, who, who modernized Turkey, even changed the alphabet from Arabic to uh, European. And, and it was the creation that ended up going all through the Arab world and often with measured, measuredness in Iran, the Shia world, the Shias. There was, by that time, of, frankly, the abuse of America in their elections, the abuse of Britain and American colonial ways, kind of dividing up the Middle East against itself, 
which happened in 1917-1918, when French and British ministers, basically having no knowledge of of these people, started to design uh, uh, colonies for the French and the English in the region. They also aligned with the Wahhabist uh, Saudi uh, tribal uh, Arab fighters who ended up creating Saudi Arabia. And basically the, the, the attempt was, whenever practicable, was to put the, uh, the fewest people in control of the most oil because the 20th century saw more and more greater interest with the age of the automobile with petrol. And so uh, it is such an important thing that even when we floated the U.S. economy and the world economy off gold, there was still a standard. It was called the petrodollar. Yep. Nixon in 71 also made a treaty with the House of Saud to, to make the that people would only deal in U.S. dollars and petroleum. That was our gold standard, which every time it's been under threat, when people get fed up with us, for instance, the very populist Iraq, um, they couldn't divide it. They did take the, the, a part of Iraq away and made it into Kuwait. That's why there was a dispute in 1990, because Kuwait was slide drilling into the Ramallah field. <laughs> Saddam Hussein was dumb enough to listen to this ambassador american ambassador april what's your name he said yeah and he said if we if we go to war with these guys are you gonna he said look that's your interior affair it's not an interest in us and i don't know if that was a april gillespie that was her name gillespie yes and well whatever happened in that meeting uh, hussein believed it was his he was getting the green light and he went in there and that ergo you had the first major land presence of U.S. forces in the Persian Gulf War, which led to the long and drawn out um, uh, aerial war over Iraq that finally led to Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003, 13 years or so later, which ended up in a ruinous eight-year occupation that also gave birth to al-Qaeda being in in country rather than in the fringes of Afghanistan, and out of the survivors of that al-Qaeda in Iraq gave birth to ISIS. So these are the karmic things that happen when you, uh, and, and what we, in a way, because the secularization, the vicious secularization of Iran by the Savak, by the Shah after we put him back on his throne, uh, created in the Islamic world that struggle between your piety the and backlash. modern secularism the inevitable the backlash. backlash was they threw that out they kept their secular as much as possible but it, you know now you have this interesting moving parts of the iranian political system which again in the book i go in detail about this but it's like we it's amazing how the people who talk about iran don't know that actually Iran is three governments. It is a it does have in its lower local elections complete democracy. Um, and in the middle is the kind of the the something akin to the so you know there's the high council of ayatollahs with the supreme leader, the chief ayatollah, which had been Khomeini till 1989. And then ever since then, it's been another man, uh, uh, Khamenei, uh, who is now the, I, the Supreme Ayatollah. So the point is, 
And I have Ayatollah uh, Khomeini explaining it is we'll let as much freedom as we can for people, but ultimately it has to pass through the high council so that it is Islamic in our interpretation of what the Sharia law. The, there's, so there's in Iran, there's the lower political democratic law and in the higher Echelons, the last word, like their Senate, if you will, if it's mm. passed through the House of Commons, is it has to be according to Allah's law. So, so of course, it gets abused because then they sometimes pick people to run for elections that will be more doing that rather than questioning. Well, the previous in the middle. The previous, here, no, no. Let me let me okay. let me finish this. This is an important point. Um, um, the the middle group. And this is the group we're about to go to war with. The middle group is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. They are, to Iran, the guardians of the revolution. They are like the Praetorian Guard that guards guards the emperor in Rome. And as can happen in Rome, the Praetorian Guard sometimes decides who's going to be the, the emperor. And and so there's this – so they are there. They have a presence in all branches of the Iranian regular armed forces, like elite Imperial Guard versions of this, including the Al-Quds battalions, which are kind of like the Green Berets slash Navy SEALs slash Marines that uh, fight with other Shia uh, groups that are f- defending against what they feel is tyranny. For instance, Hezbollah in southern uh, uh, Lebanon – it did not exist until Israel occupied southern Lebanon for decades, and it's a resistance group. To call it an international terrorist group, as it's been promoted in Washington and on mainstream news, is really inaccurate. They would not have existed if Israel had not invaded and occupied and held southern Lebanon after 1982 for years. Now, at being a revolutionary group, they committed acts of terror. Just like our in the southern uh, fronts of our revolution, there was a lot of terrorism going on in the south colonies when we were fighting the British. Mm. That happens in guerrilla war. But to think that Hezbollah has some idea, these Shia uh, Arab Lebanese have some idea equal to um, Al-Qaeda, which is Sunni, or ISIS, which is Sunni, which is this idea of a worldwide caliphate that we fight a holy war with the whole world with, that does not exist in any of the people that we don't like that Iran supports. The Hezbollah people are only interested about Lebanon. And they will help other Shia besieged friends against Israel, like the, the Shia government that rules Syria. It also is a way for the Revolutionary Guards to have a way to reach and hit Israel to counterbalance their threat of Jericho uh, regional ballistic missiles tipped with nuclear weapons that at any time, if they wish, could annihilate 90 million Iranians. So the counterbalance strategically – and I'm not saying I'm, I'm supporting this. I'm simply this – like, this is like when Israel uses America to fight and die for its wars. It's hmm. a way that they're, that's strategic. The lay of the landscape. Yeah, and so, so the way to stop Israel from using its advantage as being somebody you can't really attack because it's the only rogue nuclear power in the region is to have all those rockets pointed – uh, out of Lebanon to strike Israel 
and t- and bring the suffering they put on Iran and other people directly to their homeland. I don't like it. It's ugly, but it's neither is it. Well, it's kind of equivalent nice. to what the lever is between Kim Jong Un and North Korea, and all that massive artillery, and South Korea held hostage. Yeah, and the fact that it, it, unfortunately it is a, a fact that if you do have nuclear weapons, you will not be attacked. I mean, Kim, for instance, I found it intriguing that he finished his nuclear program when he only had managed to build ICBMs that could reach the atmosphere of the United States, but he didn't do anything from the harder part is to target, uh, make them able to actually strike cities. So I'm assuming that he's he's thinking, look. Well, he even has a worse he knows that He knows that he knows that 25 nukes are not going to wipe out 6,000 mm, Americans. John, John America can- he has an even worse lever. All he has to do is one nuke in a satellite and detonate it over that. the continent yeah, of the United States. That's where I'm getting. No, even, not even a satellite. He's already got – my point is that he already now has the ability to fire a dozen nukes over the United States at altitude and light them off and – the electromagnetic pulses takes every, every electrical Amp. device yep. out. Yep. That's all he knows he can do, and he knows because many – I'm going to say something's going to upset Americans, but outside of this country, we are known as bully wimps. We, 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 we get big and threaten and all that, but when it really comes to a fight – and this is important for what's just happened in Iran because the Revolutionary Guards get this. They, they, with all the bluster and all the saber rattling and the steaming up and down with the big carriers up and down through the Strait of Hormuz into the Persian Gulf and back into the Gulf of Oman, and all this kind of we're going to scare you so that you come to the table and talk to us, which is an art of the deal thing that Trump kind of started with North Korea, but because they understood bluff, the Iranians don't speak bluff. Okay, hold it there. The, the Iranian, top of the hour, John. Okay. I have John Hogue on the line tonight, and boy, are we having a backstory which is critical to understanding what's going on now, not just in the Middle East, but around the entire world. As you have heard, we've touched on Korea, and um, this is an undisclosed, undiscussed threat. I've been trying to get Ted Koppel on the show for some time. He actually wrote a book on AMP and the extraordinary danger it presents to civilization. I mean, instantly, in microseconds, you go from 21st century to 19th century because nothing will work and millions, if not billions of people, will die just of starvation. So that's, that's something we're going to get into in the uh, next uh, uh, half hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the
the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. <laughs> 